This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, welcome, everyone, to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Tripp. Today, we're going to be talking about Native Providence, Memory, Community, and Survivance in the Northeast with Brown University Professor of Anthropology, Patricia Rupertone. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Rupertone. Thank you, Ryan. I'm delighted to be here. So Native Providence uh, was published um, earlier this year by uh, University of Nebraska Press. Um, can you talk? Can you talk a little bit about your uh, selection of this striking cover? Um, yeah, the um, the cover image is a photograph that I took of a mural in downtown Providence uh, by the Baltimore-based artist. His name is Gaya Street, and it was created in partnership with the Avenue Concept, which is an organization that supports public art and the Tomaquag Museum. Um, to pay tribute to the indigenous heritage and peoples um, of Providence. Uh, the image shows Lincia Montanari, a Narragansett, holding the black and white image of Princess Redwing, a 20th century Narragansett Wampanoag elder, educator, historian, and activist who founded the museum in the late 1950s. So do you have a land acknowledgement for us today? Um, yes, I do. Um, I want to acknowledge that this conversation is taking place across indigenous homelands. On the West Coast, there are the Maidu and the Ohlone and the Nisanan and Saklan Miquak homelands. On the East Coast, I'm speaking from Providence, where I live and work, that is located within the ancestral homelands of the Narragansett tribal nation. The Narragansett people are still here and continue to live on the land that this settler colonial city was built upon, as well as in other cities and towns throughout the Northeast and elsewhere. They are part of Providence's past, present, and future, as are indigenous people from other nations near and far who currently reside in the city on the ancestral homelands of the Narragansett and have in former times. I'd like to second the land acknowledgement. My, on my particular end of things, um, I'm uh, podcasting from what was, I think, uh, Suckland Miwok uh, homelands, but uh, in just kind of the wider Ohlone territory. Um, but thank you for uh, your land acknowledgement as well. Please, if you can, briefly explain the organization of your book and, as an example, elucidate tasks and archaeological evidence in researching Native peoples of Providence's Fox Point to 1800. Okay. Um, I organized the book around space rather than chronology. Because I was interested in where 
and not just when Native people in Providence uh, lived during the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, more importantly, that's, there's this idea that while people live in a city, they actually inhabit um, much more modest stretches of space, you know, that we usually call neighborhoods, which are one of the universals of urban life from the earliest towns um, to modern cities. So instead of constructing an overall, you know, narrative of urban life from about the mid middle of the 19th century into the first few decades of the 20th century, um, I took what I call a granular approach that I thought would be a lens into the sites of everyday life, each with its own conditions and individual experiences. All right. So this concept of taskscapes um, is often used by archaeologists for thinking about how people dwell in the land, where they live, hunt, fish, collect plants and other raw materials, and inter and remember the dead. Um, archaeological traces of taskscapes are typically exposed in construction projects as urban development um, accelerates, as it accelerated in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, much of this evidence that was uncovered in Fox Point and other parts of the city um, was discovered accidentally in digging house foundations or in widening streets. And only later, um, sometime in the mid-1960s, uh, because of historic preservation law, um, that required a more systematic archaeological investigations of culturally sensitive properties. How and why did Fox Point's Clarence Freeman become a famed checkers player? And how did Alexander Ammons participate in the native diasporas explored in your book? In your response, I mean, probably necessarily going to have to discuss evidence, but if you can uh, discuss your evidence in assessing the lives of Fox Point uh, residents. Okay. Um, I was surprised when I saw that um, a city directory, uh, which is basically a listing of people and where they live, um, and also um, gives information about whether they owned or rented uh, their homes, and it also includes information about their occupations. So it's a kind of a phone book uh, that existed before people had telephones, and it includes um, you know, more information um, than telephone books. So I was surprised when I saw that Clarence Freeman was identified as a checkers player. Um, it was an unusual occupation, to say the least, since most Native men in the late 19th and early 20th centuries were listed as laborers or teamsters. So how he reached the heights of fame and became one of the game's best strategists um, requires some speculation. <clears throat> Uh, biographical sketches and native oral history uh, that were are reported 
about him in Narragansett Dawn, which is a magazine that was published um, in the 1930s by the Narragansett and edited by Princess Redwing, suggest that he might have learned to play uh, games similar to checkers as a young boy, using yellow and white kernels of corn or black and white beans instead of flat, round discs. Roger Williams, um, who wrote about the Narragansett in the 17th century, um, said that they had a game, like cards, that they played with rushes, and another like dice, in which they tossed painted stones into a tray. And depending on what sides, you know, the, um, for example, the painted stones fell on, someone, you know, would gain points and win or, and win or, or lose. Now, these games, which involve strategy, skill, and some luck, were, were among Native people, not simply recreational. Uh, they tested their guile and fortitude, which were personal attribu attributes uh, that were important to their survivance. A game called hubbub, in which stones, plum pits, seeds, again, painted on their sides, painted different colors on their sides, or even antler or bone discs um, were or are placed um, in a carved wooden bowl and tossed, um, is still played today okay, in Native communities. So Clarence Freeman, who was a child of divorced parents, might have played these games you know, to overcome insecurities and the dire prospects that he faced coming from a broken home and being native and poor in 19th century New England. The challenge in writing um, this book um, was, first of all, identifying native people and documents, because typically they were called anything but Indian, however problematic this term is and then, of course, finding where they lived. Mapping was cru crucially important to my research and to situating Native people in the geography of the city. But it was difficult because street addresses were not generally recorded before the mid-19th century. Streets were renamed and houses were renumbered. Some addresses could not be plotted or their locations approximated, though the majority could, and revealed you know, discrete clusters of addresses, what I call urban homelands. Now, the homes of Native people that were plotted on the map uh, were not simply points on a map, but they were multifaceted places you know, where babies were born, children were raised and cared for, uh, women took in other people's laundry, where men recuperated after accidents that kept them out of work, where friends and family visited, and so forth. Fleshing out these stories uh, required combing through all kinds of documents at major archives. 
So I looked at deeds, wills, probates, petitions, court records, military lists, maritime logs, and the occasional diary, in addition to censuses, both federal and state, city directories, and vital records. But because archival practices have separated indigenous from urban history, I also consulted other archives that are typically off the beaten track of most researchers, among them town libraries, local historical societies, municipal agencies, indigenous and anthropological museums, and even an herbarium. Not in the least, there were conversations and photographs that living Native people shared with me about family histories and values and their experiences about living in an urban landscape that was increasingly crowded with strangers, new buildings, but also kin. Uh, place visits were also an important part of my research and provided insights about 19th century streetscapes that no archive could in isolation. So having given you this prelude, let me get on to Alexander Amons. Um, like other members of the tribe, he left the Narragansett Reservation in Charlestown because of dwindling economic opportunities before the state of Rhode Island terminated relations with the tribe in 1880 in a process in which it offered to purchase remaining tribal land, that is communally held land, and confer citizenship on tribal members. Alexander Amons enlisted in the Union Army in Providence in 1865. His name also appears in the detribalization reports, which are these transcripts of public hearings held in 1879 and 1880 about abolishing the tribe and also determining tribal membership for the purposes of deciding who was entitled to a share of the sale. Okay, and in these documents, um, he's referred to as a resident of Providence. He worked on the docks as a stevedore, which is a longshoreman, and he drowned in the Providence River at the age of 37 in 1885. He spent most of his adult life in Providence, unlike his father, Gideon Amons. The elder Amons was a whaler who traveled halfway around the world and was later, when he gave up life at the, on the sea, at sea, um, was the president of the Narragansett Tribal Council and a stonemason. So in many ways, um, it was possible to, to think comparatively about these two men's lives, but also think about how different their two diasporas were. Okay. So... You speak in your in your book, you discuss uh, alternate pathways for researching the native populations of Lippet, Lippet Hill. If you can elucidate these alternate pathways by perhaps addressing the uh, burial ground beneath Bowen Street, 
um, those post-mortem inventories that you use and print as well as visual cultures, for example, for Sarah Baxter, the so-called Indian doctoress. Okay. 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 First, let me try to explain what I mean by alternative pathways. Um, It's about exploring diverse lines of evidence drawn from heterogeneous archives, written, oral, material, and visual, then can lead to new understandings about Native peoples' urban experiences. In my research, encounters with diverse evidentiary records that were daunting in their sparseness as well as in their scope yielded substantive information for piecing together the Native past within within specific spatial contours of Providence's urban landscape. Um, I toggled together um, different strands of evidence, toggled or braided them together. Um, Sometimes these different strands of evidence overlapped, and sometimes they didn't, which provoked new questions and took the research um, in unexpected directions sometimes. Okay. Now, archaeological evidence, um, for example, provides, you know, um, um, tangible, you know, material evidence that Providence was an indigenous place with a deep pre-colonial history. And this material evidence um, intrudes onto the present Um, when indigenous and human remains are exposed during construction projects. What what went largely unrecorded about these incidents um, were Native people's reactions um, to seeing unearthed objects or ancestral remains, such as those from this burial ground Um, under Bowen Street, um, which was dug into um, when the street was widened um, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. You know, I doubt that Native people who were living in the neighborhood um, were asked um, what they thought about this since most European Americans assumed that there were no Indians left, let alone any with any knowledge of their cultural traditions. Yet Native oral histories um, suggest that the neighborhood's indigenous residents and those throughout the city may have had some very different accounts of what happened uh, during road work. Um, Sarah Baxter was identified as an Indian doctress um, in public records. Um, Her name was attached to a brand of uh, natural remedies that were advertised in Providence city directories and a few in Massachusetts. The ads provide information about the services she offered and the types of medicine she prepared and sold. Ads, the images in these uh, print ads, um, tell yet another story, namely about the ways she marketed her medicine, 
using popular stereotypes of indigeneity that were based on um, John White's 16th century watercolors of Algonquian Indians um, in in the Chesapeake Bay area. Um, And uh, she also used motifs of Indian princesses uh, to appeal to white consumers. One ad shows a so-called woman of color of a certain age in a widow's dress. Um, that was done in a what I would call photorealism. So it was a photograph um, that was reproduced um, in, in newsprint. And um, the characteristics, a woman of color, a woman of a certain age, um, a woman in widow's dress, Uh, seems uncannily characteristic of Sarah Baxter at the time. And when that ad ran, um, state governments in southern New England um, were acting on ideas to abolish local tribes. And it might have been an opportune moment for Sarah Baxter, you know, to emerge from behind these other guises uh, to make her presence known um, as a real person and not just a brand name or pretender, and to comment on the role um, of intermarriage in Native survivance. Her postmortem inventory, her probate inventory, if you will, provides another pathway to learning about her life. Um, It lists the contents of the rented house where she lived and worked for 30 years, and also the contents of a separate building that was used as a kitchen. But it also reveals uh, the extent to which she was integrated um, into an expanding network of medical practitioners and suppliers for making her salves and tonics Uh, but also um, how she was connected to them for her care uh, later in life, her own care later in life. So in your book, you mentioned spaces and places. Can you give uh, or perhaps explain examples such as Edward Michael's Cottage, as well as Narragansett presence at public events, such as the Canonicus Boulder Monument unveiling? Um, And how did, how did these spaces and places help to undermine myths of disappearance? Okay, that's a great question. I think I'll start uh, by talking about Edward Michael's um, house. The house is no longer standing, and I haven't been able to find any photographs of it. But there's a description of the house Uh, by Princess Redwing, again, um, who visited with uh, Chief Pine Tree and Princess Minnetonka of the Narragansett Indian tribe in the 1930s. And this description is the next best thing to having been there. The house was not a traditional style native dwelling um, or a witu, that somehow persisted in the city from ancient times. But instead, it was a small, one-family house 
um, or cottage, uh, much like those that were constructed throughout Providence uh, by small builders um, for small buyers and was furnished with family heirlooms and modern amenities. According uh, to this description that's been handed down and printed in this magazine, Narragansett Dawn, there were totems placed above the front door for passers-by to see. Inside, there were mementos of Edward Michael's family's struggles and his childhood on the Narragansett Reservation, um, and a picture of his grandmother, who is said to bear a striking resemblance to him, was prominently displayed in the sitting room, the same sitting room where um, he and his wife served tea, biscuits, and jam to their guests. Together, the house and decor expressed what it meant to be Native while embracing modernity in the early 20th century. Um, attendance at public events um, made another statement um, about Narragansett, and not just Narragansett, the persistence of other Native peoples um, in southern New England. One of the, um, one such public events was the unveiling of the Canonicus Monument in North Burial Ground. And the attendance of Native people at these public events really baffled me at first. I wondered why Native people would attend the unveiling of monuments raised by European Americans that implied that they only existed in the past. And I suspected that their presence um, was meant to make a very powerful statement, a statement by which they refuted claims that they were extinct, uh, but also to acknowledge the continuing importance of places on the land that European Americans built these monuments upon. Okay, um, So the place was important more so than the monument itself. And at these events, based on studies that I have done of these monuments, um, yes, Native people were there, um, sometimes just a few of them, but they were mainly bystanders at these events and were rarely given the opportunity to speak. But nevertheless, they were still there. So if you can, please attempt to elucidate the significance of Native stories of place at Hoyle or Canonicus Square its redevelopment, and the relocation of the monument, um, as well as address how the move resonated with Native peoples in Upper South Providence. Okay. I haven't been able to find any information 
about how Canonicus Square got its name. Maybe it was named um, after this illustrious and renowned 17th century Narragansett sachem, because the location was where native trails in the Narragansett homeland converged. Now, it was a common practice among European Americans um, to attach native-themed names to streets and squares, arguably to align um, themselves with a deeper history of place. Most neighborhood residents in Upper South Providence um, knew Canonicus Square as Hoyle Square after the name of a tavern slash hotel that was a popular stopping place for travelers and cattle rovers entering the city. It was also a place where revival meetings were held on Sunday evenings around the turn of the 20th century. Debates erupted over its official name, Canonicus Square, and whether it should be retained on the record books or renamed for a savings bank that was built on the former site of the hotel. And this was in the 1920s. The latter proposal was dashed when a rival bank complained that it would raise brand awareness and would give the competition, this other bank, an unfair advantage. So the name Canonicus um, was kept on the record books, though it did little to change popular usage. The name of the square was revisited again in the 1980s in response to the effects of urban renewal on hi and highway construction on local businesses uh, because these projects basically depleted um, any kind of foot traffic um, from the square. So business owners, local business owners, thought that a more Indian-sounding, the more um, Indian-sounding official name would make the location seem more picturesque and ultimately help reinvigorate um, the local economy. Subsequently, the Canonicus Monument that I mentioned was moved um, from its original location in North Burial Ground and became a fixture in Upper South Providence that was known to the lo local residents or became known to local residents as the potato uh, because of its irregular and oblong shape. You know, for Native people who lived in the area, the monument's relocation you know, was in some ways an unexpected homecoming that symbolized that the Upper South Providence neighborhood um, was indeed a Native place. And they also might have thought that this location was preferable to having the monument um, in a public cemetery. Uh, but I think also they were keenly aware that the spot where the monument had been placed, where it was relocated in Upper South Providence, 
uh, which was the end at the end of a small traffic triangle, uh, was minuscule, you know, compared to the extent of the Narragansett homeland at the time of Canonicus in the 17th century. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. How did the Pond Street Church shape Native community in Upper South Providence? And how did it come to be the convocation place for the Indian Council of New England? Uh, in your response, if you can uh, address those visitations to the Roger Williams Park Museum and the Masonic Temple, as well as Thomas Bick, uh, Bicknell, that would be superb. Okay. The Pond Street um, Church uh, was a place of gathering and community building, as well as a place of worship. It was where Native people living in not just in Upper South Providence, but in other homelands throughout the city um, could gather and socialize and catch up on news after Sunday services. Um, it was where many were married and, and eulogized. Narragansett oral history suggests that beginning in the 1880s, Native people from different tribal communities met at the Pond Street Church to discuss the loss of tribal status and land, acknowledge, um, excuse me, um, talk about language preservation, um, dealing with state governments and other press, pressing issues at other times. Uh, basically, the Pond Street Church as well as other Christian churches, prepared members for social activism outside their walls, much like black churches did for African Americans in the antebellum period. In the 1920s, many of these concerns you know, were taken up by the Indian Council of New England, which was an inter-tribal organization with native and non-Native members. The council helped bring what had been private conversations among Native people onto a more public stage. So I guess it's no surprise that its first meeting was held at the Pond Street Church on December 13, 1923. The organization um, held, decided to hold biannual meetings um, that were held um, at various other venues throughout the city. And one of them was the Roger Williams Park Museum, which was a natural history museum with collections of Native American artifacts. Members of the Indian Council, when they attended the meeting at the Roger Williams Park Museum, 
would have had the opportunity to see the exhibition space and objects from the past that had been removed from native homelands. It might have been the first time that indigenous visitors had seen objects like these displayed in a museum. It's a guess, but I imagine that they might have talked among themselves about how these things got there and why many European Americans considered these things the only evidence that remained of their cultures. At the meeting held at the Masonic um, Temple, uh, which was billed as an all-day and all-night event that was filled with, uh, would be filled with speeches, um, talk about business and performances, as were most of these, uh, as were most meetings of the Indian Council of New England. But at this particular meeting, um, the question of imposing a $2 membership fee was discussed to help cover the cost of renting meeting spaces and to cover the cost of stationery and stamps to keep in touch with the increasing number of members and to recruit new ones. Uh, because of concerns over rental cost, members were encouraged to use their social work and church connections to find venues where fees could be waived you know, or reduced. But I think we're, when you read um, what little information exists about the Indian Council of New England, um, it's clear um, that um, membership um, was increasing. And this is important, and I think the, the fact that they were, had to, were thinking about and did impose a membership fee, um, you know, um, confirms that. <clears throat> Excuse me. The Indian Council was in existence only for two years. Um, during its tenure, Thomas Bicknell, who was an educator and an antiquarian, um, served as an honorary white co-sachem. Uh, but during you know, his, his tenure, representatives of Native nations were elected to leadership positions um, and recruitment was intensified. The creation of these local, what were called local teepees, recognized that members of the organization, um, in addition to having an intertribal identity as Indians, also had particular tribal affiliations. And like congregants at the Pond Street Church, who, when asked, might have stood up at services and identified themselves as belonging to any one of the region's homelands, indigenous homelands, Native members of the Indian Council would have held on to their tribal identities. And they did so you know, while participating um, in the modern world as wage earners and pondering how their traditional skills of basket making, woodworking, and beading 
could raise awareness about their knowledge of these cultural practices and create new markets for them. So let's dip down a bit. Prior to the disruptions of urban renewal in Lower South Providence, how did native diasporic intersections produce an quote-unquote Indianness in the social-cultural fabric far more than racial labels? Like Providence's other native homelands, street corners um, in Lower South Providence were places where men might have congregated in the hope of picking up a day job. Some intersections um, were were where former trails crossed. They were paths that ancestors had walked and now that their descendants traveled not only by foot, but by streetcar and automobiles. So the argument is, you know, that street corners, intersections, uh, were important places of gathering, you know, that that brought, you know, people together. Um, You know, um, if men were looking for work and all that was available was a day job, I imagine that the same group of men probably gathered, you know, at the same street corners, you know, every day. Um, The Chestnut Street Church was another name for the second Methodist meeting house that was located at the intersection of Chestnut and Clifford Streets. Many Native and African Americans were drawn to Methodism um, because of its emphasis first on community building through gatherings such as camp meetings and conferences, but also because of its evidence on uh, the performative aspects of worship that used body and voice. That for Native people shared much in common with their dominant ritual form. That's called nikamo, uh, which was translated as meaning feast or dance Uh, by Roger Williams in the 17th century. Now, as he described these rites, they were convened by someone called a powwow, and then everyone um, who was gathered joined in to what is described as a laborious bodily service um, that involved movement um, and gesticulating and sounds as well as solemnity and feasting, which sometimes last, lasted for days. So I'm, I'm making the argument that the church um, resonated with Native people because of, of practices um, that reminded them um, of their, you know, traditional, you know, ceremonies. Um, or rights. And I'm, you know, thinking about, um, you know, street, street corners and intersections um, as, as places, you know, of, of gathering um, that contributed 
you know, to community building, um, you know, more than just, you know, racial um, labels. Because in many cases, you know, families had mixed ancestries. I hope I've answered your question. Uh, yes, you have. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what was the significance of Native ties to Providence as Wampanoag, etc., migrants? Um, and if you can um, explain Jerome Melville's evoking, evocation of the image of the trickster and the significance of that. Um, and then in your response, uh, um, please address the Roger Williams homes and those dream rides. Now, native mobility is a major um, theme um, in the, the chapter on Lower South Providence. And in it, I talk about the role of trains and automobiles in indigenous people's lives um, and in narrations of their migration to the city. Jerome, Jerome Melville was the son of a woman named Roxana Dwight, whose Narragansett mother had married um, a Swedish man. Uh, Jerome held various jobs in Providence before he moved to New York to become a stockbroker. His prospects for success um, were marred when he was sued for fraud in a stock transaction and accused of heading a gambling establishment that ran a Ponzi-style scheme. So Trickster. Um, I thought that Trickster uh, seemed to be an appropriate um, label for him for a variety of reasons. Among, the, among them was his Narragansett ancestry and his whiteness, his rejection of conventional notions about occupations um, that European Americans thought uh, were suited for Indians, and his willingness to take chances. His was a life that invoked irony and defied victimhood. Now, other people who, who moved to Providence, um, and here I'm, I'm thinking about Lower South Providence specifically, found housing in lodging houses, which were residential locations often frequented by unskilled workers who migrated to New England cities from the countryside in the later 19th century. Lodging houses were similar to boarding houses, uh, but they were somewhat less communal. And lodging was often a stepping stone um, to a more permanent home. Other newly arrived uh, Native people um, often stayed with a relative um, or friends upon their arrival, um, and then eventually found places of their own. Many stayed for decades, others only for a few years. William Apis, um, a Pequot activist, 
speaker and writer who presided over class meetings with the Chestnut Street Churches, African and Native congregants, um, was one of them. He also embarked on his career as an itinerant Methodist preacher from Providence. Many Native residents um, who moved away from the city remained connected to Providence, the Providence Indian community, and a wider network of relationships by visiting. Okay, they would come back to visit friends. Um, They would um, reconnect um, at powwows. Mobility also figured into the lives of, of basket makers that I discuss in the Lower South Providence chapter. Uh, These are basket makers who often traveled from town to town by train or by some other means of conveyance to sell their baskets. Port towns like Providence with thriving maritime industries provided a ready market Uh, particularly for their large wood splint baskets um, that were used um, as shipping containers. Smaller, fancier baskets were sold to domestic consumers for household storage and display. The railroads that facilitated basket makers' travel embodied the experiences of their journey, journey but also their engagements with the modernizing world. And were entangled, I think, in their sense of belonging to where they came from and also to places where they stopped along the way. In the 20th century, cars also expanded Native people's horizons and increased the speed with which they could travel to new places and visit familiar ones. More than trains, cars were about social aspirations. They made a visual statement that the driver, and this is assuming that the driver was the owner of the car, had achieved at least a piece of the American dream. Okay, dream rides. Okay, I borrowed this term from Deborah Sebastian Jones, a Mashantucket Pequot, originally from Providence, who uses the term to describe Sunday road trips to the country that her family took in any car, whether it was old, dented, or malfunctioning, to temporarily escape the conditions of urban life and to see a world of imagined possibilities. Okay. Now, as run down as some houses in Lower South Providence had become by the middle decades of the 20th century, urban reformers typically exaggerated their substandard, what they considered their substandard and overcrowded conditions by calling these sections or neighborhoods blighted, 
uh, the term blighted. It was basically a rhetorical device that set the stage for urban renewal in which existing houses were demolished and families were displaced. Uh, Public housing, um, like the Roger Williams homes in Lower South Providence, offered alternative housing, but usually not enough units. And this was the case for the Roger Williams homes. Not enough units were set aside for non-whites. So besides urban renewal, uh, besides, you know, creating the loss of home, um, reduced and fractured social networks, um, though didn't necessarily destroy them completely. Since for friendships that existed, you know, before these houses were demolished to make way for public housing, um, were, were sustained, even though people, uh, many of them, um, had moved away from the area. So what role did stories play in reconfiguring Mashbook Pond from a colonized to native place, especially after uh, the Corum Manufacturing Company's production of native equestrian statuettes um, and the production began to poison the pond? I thought that was interesting. Um, among native people in the Northeast, pond land was valued um, much more than other types of land, for example, upland um, or perhaps even swampland. So Mashapog Pond was a pond land. It was a pond and the land around it. Okay? Uh, the pond was a place where they could launch you know, their small canoes and paddle across in order to cool off, um, to fish, or to reach thickets of blueberries and raspberries that grew wild, um, and um, as well as bulrushes and cattails um, that would have been used um, in, in, in weaving and making mats and making baskets. Um, the pond was also a place where they could bathe after a sweat in a hothouse. In other words, taking a sweat bath, which was both a cleansing and a spiritual experience um, for indigenous people. These practices um, continued um, into more recent times. Okay, so there would still be, you know, fishing and fishing in the pond, gathering along its edges, um, as, as well as, you know, bathing after a sweat. Uh, but in more recent times, indigenous people who lived around the pond um, would skate across its frozen surface during the wintertime. Um, they would swim there during the summer, and some of them were even baptized by immersion in the pond's waters. Like other ponds in indigenous homelands, Mashapog would have had stories told about it. Some stories are continu 
continually transmitted native oral narratives that reflected the predicaments that Northeast Native people faced because of settler colonialism. In addition, Mashapog Pond would have also had its own stories. These might have been stories about drownings. These were also stories about caves we're in around the pond um, where Indians lived in the past. There was a story about a mysterious African-American woman in a white dress who walked around the pond from time to time. And there were stories about cleared rocks, which would come back again and again um, after being plowed up season after season. Okay, so these are just a, a few stories that are specific to Mashapog Pond. Now, as the Gora Manufacturing Company um, polluted the pond by emitting, em, emitting toxic waste from the production of bronzes, um, including the bronze uh, statuettes that um, were, you know, replicas of Cyrus Stalin's larger equestrian statues. Um, as it was making, um, it's highly, you know, uh, there were toxic substances related to um, silverware production. I imagine that residents, and there is an oral history of this, would have noticed that fish were dying Turtles were washing up on the shore. Cattails, these grasses, uh, were reduced um, to kind of raggedy um, sticks. They would have also smelled foul odors. Um, seeing the pond water, you know, turn kind of brackish. Um, and physically, they would have experienced, you know, burning um, lips and skin. Their eyes would have become very itchy. Um, they would have had sore throats, difficulty in swallowing, various kinds of body aches, and fatigue that they couldn't quite explain. Um, Cheryl Savagebeau, a French Abnaki poet, writes about these environmental processes related to settler colonialism's continuing effects on native space in her poem, Poison in the Pond. But unlike obvious you know, hazards that had been dumped into the pond, um, like unwanted oil drum, drums, broken machine parts, old cars and tires, and other cons and construction debris, the Gorham foundry's pollutants um, were invisible and yet much more harmful to the well-being of the Native community that had long lived along the, along the pond. In the context of the coalescence of a Pequot community on Federal Hill, 
What did Sidney Ryder's accusations against Moses Daly demonstrate about Euro-American racial presumptions in the late 19th and early 20th centuries? Okay. Um, Sidney Ryder was a local historian who published a weekly newsletter called Book Notes. Um, He published this this new newsletter between 1883 and 1916. And it was a platform for his opinionated, critical, and often cantankerous essays that challenged interpretations of Rhode Island history. While his views were frequently at odds with those of other history writers and ordinary citizens, his skepticism about Moses Daly's indigeneity were not, was not. Um, he questioned how Moses Daly you know, could possibly claim to be a Pequot Indian when the tribe was destroyed in the colonial conflict, or more correctly, massacre, known as the Pequot War in 1637, 200 years before he was born. And besides, Ryder said, Indians didn't have three names, a first, a middle, and a family name, like Moses P. Daly. Ryder was not alone in denying modernity to Native people and in ignoring um, the historical circumstances um, like missionization and enslavement by which they acquired Christian names. He persisted in attempting to undermine Daly's ancestry by pointing to his marriage record. So he did a little research on his own, and he checked out Moses Daly's marriage record, in which both he and his wife were identified as colored. He also checked their daughter's birth record, um, and in her birth record, she was also labeled colored. Now, colored was an umbrella term for all people of color, regardless of whether um, that person was Native American, African American, or both, or belonged to some other non-white racial category. And the term colored had been in use as early as 1850 in federal censuses. Uh, The term Indian um, wasn't always an option or was identifying a native person by their tribal name. We also have to understand that record keepers made subjective and hasty judgments uh, based on an individual's skin color or their manner of dress and often lumped family members in the same category, even if they had different ancestries. You know, intermarriages, and I referred to them before, 
between Native Americans and African Americans and whites. We're part of complicated histories of indigenous survivance in southern New England and also elsewhere in Native North America. That was partially, particularly in southern New England, it was partially a response to demographic imbalances uh, related to the loss of Native men in colonial wars um, and their absences while they were at sea um, or searching for Native work, uh, for other work outside of their Native communities. So Ryder and other, many other Euro-Americans could not reconcile that Moses Daly could be indigenous and modern, let alone urban, since it confounded wildly held expectations about Indians and also about cities. What did John Hazard's estate inventory reveal about the Narragansett community on Federal Hill? And if you can address uh, those hair doctresses um, and uh, the Pine Grove encampment that would, I think, facilitate things. So I'll start with John Hazard's estate inventory. Uh, The inventory lists his personal possessions uh, that were accumulated over a lifetime from earnings um, as a teamster and before that um, from earnings um, as a mariner. The inventory, the items listed in the inventory, suggest that his home was modest and yet comfortable. It was small. It was a two-room living space. But it was furnished uh, with some modern conveniences of late 19th century life, such as a cook stove and a refrigerator. But with few dishes or tea sets that would have been used in entertaining. These nods to modernity, the cook stove and the refrigerator, along with a clock, mirrors, and a picture of President Lincoln, comment on John Hazard's embrace of 19th century consumerism, but also his stake in the American dream. His earnings not only enabled him to buy things, but they also put home ownership within his reach and secured a future for his sons, two of whom were minors at the time of his death, and were placed under the guardianship of their older half-brother who raised them with his Narragansett wife and their own children. The hair doctresses. Okay. These were Native women who specialized um, in treatments for hair restoration, mostly. It was the kind of work that gave them various measures of financial independence and in some cases, the means of home ownership. 
at another level, the services that they offered helped boost the self-esteem of women of color, their neighbors on Federal Hill, in a society in which they were often thought of as worthless and unattractive. Okay, the Passamaquoddy basket makers who camped um, at the Pine Grove. The Pine Grove was an open space along the railroad tracks and the Winoskatucket River. Okay. Um, they stayed there for a while and eventually found housing nearby. Um, unlike the hair doctresses, uh, these basket makers did what was considered stereotypical um, Indian work. They made baskets, and they would have adapted their weaving skills to, make, to making scrubs, scrub brushes, um, and brooms, and also to bottom chairs um, to suit, suit the needs um, of the marketplace in order to support their families. As vendors on the streets of Providence, pedestrians on Federal Hill might have glanced at them with condescension or haggled with them over the prices of baskets. Um, that for them, for the basket, the makers of the baskets, um, had much more than economic value. If sales weren't good, they might have had to beg for any type of work. Um, mostly, they returned to their Wabanaki um, homelands. Okay. You also um, ask about, about the term Nakabakulet. Few European Americans um, who lived on Federal Hill or knew about Federal Hill um, were aware that Native people lived there in the 19th and early 20th centuries, even though European Americans who were residents of Federal Hill and others um, sometimes called it Indian Hill. Um, Indian Hill was a nonspecific Indian place name that acknowledged a kind of vague, a kind of hazy um, indigenous present, presence sometime in a distant past. So in a city like Providence that was filled with enduring indigenous place names, Naka Bet. Uh, translated to mean hill above the river, clearly wasn't one of them. So, um, so for clarification, prior to the podcast, I did ask about uh, Nakabua, but, uh, but how, how did uh, storied rocks, archaeological evidence, and powwows connect uh, New Connecticut Hill and the town of Johnston as sort of like a urban borderlands to the city of Providence? Um, Johnston was located right at the edges um, of, of Providence. It was a more rural um, than an urbanized place. Uh, but nevertheless, there were some um, 
some very important and enduring um, connections between Johnston um, and the city of Providence. Um, a place called Newtoconnicket Hill, um, and particularly another, uh, a storied rock called Hipsy's Rock, marked the northwestern boundary of lands that European settler colonists were given rights to use um, by uh, Narragansett Sachems, uh, by Canonicus and his um, nephew, Menantonomo. Um, members of Johnston's native families um, previously lived in Providence. And while residing in Johnston, they navigated back and forth to Providence um, for social and economic reasons. And there's a bit of uh, local oral history um, that says that they even went there on a seasonal basis um, to pick up trash fish, fish that was fish parts that were discarded on the Providence waterfront that they uh, brought back to Johnston and used um, to fertilize their gardens. Um, this practice of using fish as fertilizer has a very um, long history um, among native people. Um, in southern New England. Uh, Johnston was also the site of, of powwows uh, that were hosted by intertribal organizations in the 1930s that took up the cause of the Indian Council of New England. Uh, Johnston was a convenient location for gatherings of native people from Providence. Um, they didn't have to travel um, too far um, to get there in order to reconnect um, with family and friends you know, from other cities and towns on these occasions. And about the, the archaeological um, evidence, um, there, uh, particularly new to Connecticut Hill, um, has many um, natural stone uprights. It's a place, it's the type of place that would have been very important um, to Native people um, for, for ceremonies. Um, it would have been a place that would have been um, especially important um, during certain times of the year. Uh, perhaps during the summer um, and, and winter um, um, solstice. And there haven't, to my knowledge, been any you know, formal archaeological in investigations um, on Newtoconnicket Hill. Uh, but from time to time, um, different collectors, call them avocational archaeologists, um, have found um, objects that have been brought to the attention of the Rhode Island Historic Preservation um, and Heritage Commission um, or to places like the Roger Williams uh, Park 
museum. So um, let's uh, talk really briefly in our conclu- concluding minutes here um, about Narragansett encounters with the U.S. justice system. Uh, so specifically, Amazo uh, Walmsley's life and confession, his public execution at Squaw Hollow, and that kind of the, the kind of ordeal of the um, them being exhumed, the bone transferals, and the reinterment um, at the North Burial Ground. Um, yes, all of the above um, <laughs> says a great deal um, about um, Native encounters with the uh, U.S. justice system. You know, his trial comments um, on the credibility of of testimony from witnesses for the prosecution versus the defense, Um, his life in confession, um, which was taken um, while he was in jail. Um, We don't know how much of his, what we read is his voice. Uh, versus words that were put into his mouth. Um, It offers a warning um, about the dangers of intemperance and more broadly, his public execution about the risks posed to white society by Native American men, mostly young, uneducated, and seemingly unanchored, who drifted from job to job and town to town in search of work or respect. You know, that his remains were disinterred uh, during construction for the expansion of a railroad um, isn't all that surprising, nor the murky details of, you know, what happened to them when they were unceremoniously removed um, to Providence in a a burlap sack uh, to Providence's North Burial Ground for safe keeping. And, you know, scenarios like this, you know, are reasons for Native people's activism that eventually resulted um, in the passage of NAGPRA, the Native American Graves and Grave Protection and Repatriation Act um, in 1990. How did uh, material culture from the Ochi uh, Springs soapstone quarry to conclude substantiate the idea that Johnston endures as a so you know quote unquote Indian place uh, proximate to the native providence that we've examined in this podcast? Mm-hmm. I think the soapstone bowls, whole and broken, castoffs from the manufacturing process and quarrying tools provide indisputable evidence of the scale of native lithic technologies at this particular um, soapstone outcrop um, that dates back thousands of years. Um, Cartloads of debris were hauled away um, from this quarry uh, when it was exposed and was used as fill to fill in low-lying areas um, of the property. Um, Finished and partial bowls and tools, you know, were taken uh, by major institutions um, and by individuals, you know, for their private collections. 
there's been defacement of this outcrop over the years, um, you know, well into the 20th and 21st century by souvenir hunters. And yet the quarry is still there. Um, it sits kind of nestled between a parking lot where there are some um, small manufacturing businesses um, and a highway. And it's uh, obscured uh, behind a unlocked chain link fence um, and weeds. Um, yet it's, it's a very, very powerful reminder um, that Johnston, you know, endures as a native place, you know, after, you know, all these years. So I have uh, one uh, final question. What's, uh, what projects are you currently working on or, uh, you know, are planning on working on next? I mean, what's, what's working next other than a, uh, probably a brief vacation? Well, I want to follow up on um, some of the work on the um, on these bronze statuettes that were manufactured um, by um, the um, Gorham Company. Um, I'm interested in the relationship between art, these statuettes, indigenous and uh, dispossession and environmental racism. Um, I want to get a better sense about, you know, who actually bought these statuettes um, to use, you know, in, in their homes, right? Um, so that, that's um, one piece of reach that, uh, research that, you know, was planned um, for my sabbatical last fall, but was impossible to do because of the COVID-19 you know, uh, pandemic. I've also been working on um, a manuscript that's rethinking a 17th century book called New England, New England's Prospect that was written by William Wood, and it's about the Massachusetts uh, Bay Colony. And uh, I want to look at the book's afterlives. Now I'm thinking about books not just in terms of their content, but as physical objects um, that were modified through time, as well as the map that was included um, in um, the book, uh, because I think, you know, marginalia, uh, creases, rips, whatever, that's part, you know, of a book and a map's story. And in particular, I want to look at um, the map um, from an in indigenous perspective, which is something that William Wood, you know, did not um, do. Really? compelling uh, projects ahead, of, ahead for you. I hope you remember the New Books Network for uh, those particular endeavors. So, I will. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> uh, so on behalf of Professor uh, Rupertone, 
The book is Native Providence, Memory, Community, and Survivance in the Northeast, published earlier uh, uh, this year by uh, University, or last year, by University of Nebraska Press. This has been a production of uh, New Books in Native American Studies, um, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, or I have been your host, Ryan Tripp, and will be your host. Uh, please, please tune in next time.